We'll be reading the whole chapter of Joel 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountain tops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own calm. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children of Children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out, go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your, their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his people and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. 
Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you, and, put my, pe- and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall, shall, shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my man, men servants and my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin our study in God's word? Father, we're grateful that this is the day that you've made. I pray that we would rejoice and be glad in it. You've given to us another opportunity to hear and to respond to your word this morning. And so, Father, we ask that you would teach us what you would have us to know from the prophet Joel. And may we come away with a clear understanding of who you are. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to be called a child of the Most High God. It's a privilege for which we are eternally grateful. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we think about this word before us here in the book of Joel, I was drawn to ask a question this week, and this is kind of a catalyst into our study. What what genre, as you think about uh, different types of uh, of genre in in the scriptures, uh, which, which one would you say is one that you tend to read the most? Do you tend to read the Gospels the most? Do you tend to read Paul's epistles? Do you find yourself reading the book of the law, those first five books of the Old Testament? And then I was thinking about the the opposite end of that question. Which one of the genres in Scripture do you tend to find yourself reading the least? Would it be books of poetry? Perhaps maybe a book or two in that section. But I would venture to say many of you probably read Psalms and Proverbs fairly regularly. Would it be the books of history? Would it be the prophetical books? More specifically, might it be the minor prophets? And I was thinking about this and I I know for myself that's probably where, where I'm at in terms of least read maybe least understood. And so I put that out there for consideration this morning as we begin. The prophets 
are an interesting bunch, are they not? The prophets were given a word from the Lord. They spoke as representatives of the Lord to the people, oftentimes for a very particular, specific purpose. Oftentimes we see these prophets speaking of things yet to come, as we see in Joel's book today. They served as chosen deliverers of the message from the Lord. So when you understand that the message from the Lord was typically a response, the Lord was giving these prophets a message in response to the sin and disobedience of the people. When you understand that, you get the picture that not many people relished a prophet walking into their land in the day. They weren't thought of very highly on many occasions. Who wants to be called out on their own sin? And who wants to hear from the guy always pronouncing doom and gloom? Is there anybody that wants to hear this guy? That's sort of this role and line of the prophet. And so we see in the text that the prophet had a reputation, it seems, in some circles of of throwing what we would call a wet blanket on things. There's this one guy who, who, who comes in and proclaims the word of the Lord and hardly anyone agrees with him and many are, are just ready to get rid of him. You know, I was reminded here of 2 Chronicles 18. In 2 Chronicles 18, you might recall, uh, Jehoshaphat has aligned himself wrongly with King Ahab. And Ahab is wanting Jehoshaphat to go into battle with him. And Jehoshaphat says, well, have you inquired of the Lord? And Ahab says, yes, in fact, 400 of my prophets. And they all said, Go. They all said, let's go. Lord's with us. And Jehoshaphat says, well, aren't aren't there any others that you can inquire of here? And you almost get the picture Ahab kind of scratching his head, just kind of wrestling with the question that's been put forth. And he says, yeah. He says, there's this one guy. And he says, I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Remember that prophet, Micaiah? You know, it seems as we, as we look to the scripture, it seems like God might have gone about this a different way to get the people's attention. But, but God, this was God's way. God used prophets to voice his concerns to the people. He employs them to warn the people of where things are headed if they don't stop in this direction. He exhorts them to call the people back to himself. And you know, as I think about this summary job description of the prophet, I I don't think that the Lord was receiving very many resumes for the position. Not many people are signing up to deliver a message that people don't like to hear. I mean, put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes for just a moment. You might recall these words of Jeremiah 1, 17 through 19. The Lord says to Jeremiah, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar. And bronze walls against the whole land. They will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Now the prophet is put to the test. Not only to deliver the word of the Lord. But to see if he will walk by faith in the one who called him. Jeremiah hears that the people are going to fight against him. But he also hears that the Lord will be with him to deliver him. 
So there's a measure of trust needed to walk that assignment out, right? Joel is one of the prophetical books in the scriptures. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Right? Those last 12 in particular are what referred to as the minor prophets. They're not minor, by the way, because they're insignificant people. They're minor oftentimes in regard to the content. There's more with the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? Ezekiel and Daniel. But we have here a very significant section of Scripture, these minor prophets. That's what we're going to be looking at over these next five weeks. What we have before us in the book of Joel, chapter 1, verse 1, we have the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Joel means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And that's interesting because on two different occasions in this, in this book of Joel, the Lord himself declares through the prophet that I am the Lord your God. Joel seems to be speaking to the people of Judah, those in Jerusalem. He speaks of the house of the Lord. He speaks of priests and ministers to the house of the Lord. He speaks of grain offerings and drink offerings. Chapter 2, he speaks of blowing the trumpet in Zion, my holy mountain. Chapter 3, he talks about bringing back captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So, seems to be writing to the people in Jerusalem. Outside of this book... We don't really have any handles on Joel or his father, Pethuel. The setting for the book is also somewhat obscure. You can read many scholars and you'll find a a whole list of thoughts as to when this book may have been written. One may have been written sometime before 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Another one that's oftentimes put put into play for us to consider in terms of the dating and the timing is around 850 to 800 B.C. during the reign of Joash. We see that if that is the case, Joel very well could have been a contemporary serving alongside the prophet Elisha. And it could have been. Very well could have been, especially as you read through the entirety of the Minor Prophets. You see, there are other prophets who use some of the same terminology, almost verbatim, that Joel uses. And so there's this idea that perhaps Joel was one of the earliest, one of the earliest um, prophets. And that people, the other prophets, were borrowing some of Joel's ideas and words that had been put forward. Whether it's a late or whether it's an early dating doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the main thoughts and themes and content of the book of Joel. But there are many things that we just are not sure of as we come to this book of Joel. As we look to the word of the Lord over these next five Sundays, I'd like you to read with a lens of gratitude. We're going to take five minor prophets 
and essentially piece together a portrait of who God is. And the objective is to see what the word of the Lord in the prophets has to say about the character of God. So as we look to the Lord God and we see his mighty hand at work, it's, it's my hope that we're drawn even more to worship him, to give him praise, to give him thanksgiving. For I believe, as we'll see, he is indeed a mighty God and he's deserving of all of our praise. So with that brief summary and objective put forth, I'd like to take the remainder of our time in the text identifying this God that we serve through the lens of the prophet Joel. So what do you learn in this book about the character of God and what do you see in these three chapters of Joel that would cause you to say, thanks be to God for who you are? Let's look first at this, what I'll call the day of the locusts. The day of the locusts. Just read a few verses from chapter 1. He says, hear this, you elders, in verse 2, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. That's a mouthful. And you might be saying, what are all these different kinds of locusts? Uh, more than likely, just different stages of the locust. There's some uncertainty as to what this is all describing, but we can, I think, be assured that we're talking about locusts at various stages. And they're eating a bunch of stuff. They're destroying everything in their path. We see a few verses later, this locust army is described as a nation a nation verse 6 a nation has come up against my land strong and without number his teeth are the teeth of a lion and he has the fangs of a fierce lion he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree he stripped it bare and thrown it away its branches are made white the invasion of the locusts God's mighty army has come, and it's come to his own land. His own people are the recipients of his judgment. There's a call in these first few verses to make this known among the generations. Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and so on. Why? What's the purpose of dredging up something so miserable as a locust invasion? Why would the Lord call his people to remember the day of the locusts? You know, most people who have any idea of Joel's content immediately recognize it as a book of the locust plague. Isn't that the book of the locusts? I mean, most people kind of put those pieces together. It is that, but the locust plague is not the highlight of the text. The locust plague is an event used by God to draw attention, I believe, to something greater, something of higher importance, something of eternal value. And so as the locusts come on the scene, notice that they do great damage. Starting in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. Verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Verse 11, 
the wheat and the barley. The harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, verse 12. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm tree, the apple tree, all the trees are withered. And with that, surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. We see in 16, the food cut off right before their eyes. And there again, joy and gladness cut off from the house of our God. The seed is shriveling under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. Grain is withered. The animals are even in on this. They're groaning. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. The flocks of sheep, they suffer punishment. Fire has devoured the open pastures. A flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field are crying out to the Lord. The water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the the pastures. Notice that the word of the Lord in the midst of the locust plague. Action is called for. Verses 13 and 14. Lamenting, consecrating a fast, calling a sacred assembly, gathering together the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord. For what purpose? For what corporate purpose? To cry out to the Lord. The word of the Lord through Joel is this. Alas, for the day... For the day of the Lord, verse 15, is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel says God is behind all this, people of Judah. God is the one orchestrating these things. In the midst of the disaster that confronts you, turn your eyes to the Lord. Cry out to Him. The locusts have indeed done great damage. But turn to the Lord, people. Cry out to Him. Joel himself in verse 19 cries out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, to you I cry out. The day of the locusts is a wake-up call to the people of Judah. You know, and I got to thinking how devastation oftentimes has a way of getting our attention. The locusts are eating everything. Consider what it must have been like to go through this particular event while living in an agrarian society. Your livelihood depended upon your crops. The oil, the grain, the new wine, the trees, they're gone. They've withered away. They've perished. What do you do when all that you've relied upon for living is now gone? What happens when the locusts arrive and make it no longer possible for you to live as you once lived? Where do you turn? Who do you turn to? How do you lead at a time when your cherished resources are now gone? That's the situation confronting the people. Praise be to God for his warnings. Thanks be to God for shaking us out of our slumber, alerting us to something greater, something of eternal value that we can hold on to, something that will never perish. 
And you know, the results might look disastrous, but we can give him thanks. Or, as the Bible says elsewhere, we can consider it pure joy in the midst of the trials that come, knowing that he is working all things, all things together for his good, for those called according to his purpose. We can also rest in knowing that his judgments are always just. Always. The day of the locusts seems to have a bigger purpose. And as you continue reading the word of the Lord through Joel, you begin to see more of God's purpose come into view. It's not primarily about the locusts. In fact, I believe the day of the locusts is intended to draw attention to the day of the Lord. Let's look at that for just a moment. The day of the locusts helps draw our attention to the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And so even as the Lord speaks through Joel about this day of the Lord at hand, there seems to be on one hand a description of the army of locusts and a description of God's judgment yet to come. Joel is prophesying of something great and very terrible yet to come. That's chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this people, great and strong, the like of whom have never been. Chapter 2, verse 2. Just as a side note, some have deemed this people being described in verse 2 as the Babylonian army from the north. May fit if you put the dating of the book around that time frame. Some still believe he's speaking about the locusts. I tend to, in large part, because there's some of the same descriptors in chapter 2 as what we saw in chapter 1. Seem to be very similar descriptors. Perhaps he's describing neither one of those things. <laughs> but merely pointing to something greater yet to come. And so we see in, in chapter 2, verse 3, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. Look at 119. We see that same imagery, a fire and a flame. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. Isn't that an interesting description? Can you picture the Garden of Eden? Can you picture it? And he says that the land, it's like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like that of horses. They run like swift steeds. They have noise like chariots, verse 5. They're, they're like strong people set in battle array, verse 5. Like a strong people. Verse 2 uses that same word, a people come great and strong. Chapter 1, verse 6, when he's describing this nation, this army of locusts, and nations come up against my land, strong. That's the descriptor of this army. We see even a glimpse of the people as this day of the Lord is approaching. The people writhe in pain. Their faces are drained of color. They run, these, this army, this great people. They run, verse 7, like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. They march in formation. They do not break rank. 
They march in their own column. They don't push one another. There seems to be a very orderly attack, a very orderly approach, which fits into this orderly God that we serve. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into houses. They enter at the windows like a thief, like a thief, like a thief, like a thief. Does that sound familiar? The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Look at the accompanying sights and sounds in verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. We see the same description almost verbatim in chapter 3 verse 15 where it says there the sun and moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. Seems to be here a melding together of the day of the locusts with the pending day of the Lord. Who is behind all this? Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The Lord, the Lord gives voice before his army. For his camp is very great. Here's that word again. For strong, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Who? Can anyone on his own endure the coming day of the Lord? The question is submitted by Joel here through the Lord. But the answer, I believe, is inferred. No one, not a single person on his own can endure the day of the Lord to come. So what then? What's needed to prepare oneself for this day of the Lord as Joel Joel speaks of here in the text? What's needed? In light of this day of the Lord, what's needed and what's called for here by Joel the prophet is the day of repentance. Day of repentance. That's exactly where the Lord goes here. Verse 12. Now therefore, or even yet, says the Lord... Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And Joel himself in 13 and 14 adds, he says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows? If he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Right here in the midst of Joel's prophecy, we begin to see a heart problem among God's people. The Lord says, turn to me with all your heart, implying what? They hadn't previously operated with all their heart turned toward the Lord. Joel's words in verse 13, I believe, are instructive not only for the people of God in Joel's day, but for each one of us here who call upon the name of the Lord. The call is to rend your heart and not your garments. Rend your heart 
and not your garments. It was common practice to, to rend or to tear or rip the garment as an outward sign of repentance. You might remember Josiah when he heard the book of the law read. Remember, it had been lost, and now it was found. They come, and they read the book of the law. One of the things Josiah does is he tears his clothes. 2 Chronicles 34, 19. Ezra, the priest, when he hears that God's people had intermarried with those from the pagan nations, he tore his garment and his robe. And having torn his garment and his robe, he fell on his knees, and he spread out his hands to the Lord his God in prayer in Ezra chapter 9. The scriptures, though, also give us a testimony that the rending of the garments does not always imply a repentant heart. For example, Matthew 26, verse 65, Jesus is standing before the high priest. The high priest asks him the question. After Jesus gives the answer, the high priest then tears his clothes and he says, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. In that instance, we see the tearing of the garment is definitely not in the category of one who has a repentant heart. Joel says, rend your heart and not your garments. The call is for heart repentance and not simply behavior modification. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, he says, I rejoice that your sorrow led to repentance. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The call here in the scripture in the book of Joel is to return to the Lord your God. And right on the heels, listen, right on the heels of the call to return is a gallery of good reasons, all rooted in the character of God. All reasons to be thankful even yet today. Listen closely to what Joel says. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is, here they are, gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. Praise the Lord, he's slow to anger. He's kind. He's loving in every way. And he relents from doing harm. In 2 Peter, we read that God is long-suffering toward us as well, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. In light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, into whose hands would you rather turn? I was thinking about that and I was drawn to David in 2 Samuel chapter 24. You might remember his sin. Remember he took a census and, and, and the seer, the prophet of the day, Gad, was sent to David. And God allowed David to choose his means of punishment for his sin that he'd committed. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, David says to Gad the prophet, he says, I am in great distress. He says, please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? For his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. You see, David seemed to understand some things about the character of God. Even in the midst of his sin, he would much rather fall into the hands of the Lord than the hands 
of men. Joel presents some wonderful blessings on the other side of the repentant heart. In fact, 2.18 says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. This comes after the repentant heart. Listen to the blessings that come on the backside of the repentant heart. He'll send grain, new wine and oil, and bring satisfaction by them. Verse 19. He'll remove the enemy from them in verse 20. Praise the Lord. He's going to remove the enemy. Verses 21 and 22. Land and beast need not be afraid. Open pastures are springing up. Trees are bearing fruit. Fig tree and vine are going to yield their strength. Verse 23. Children of God need not be afraid. They can rejoice in the Lord, the one who has been faithful in days past to send those rains. He is going to, in his faithfulness, continue to bring those rains that are needed. Verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of wheat. Vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And verse 25, I love this verse. He's going to restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. God is going to restore those years. Verse 26, the people are going to eat in plenty and they're going to be satisfied. They're not, notice, they're not going to be stuffed and gorged. He's going to satisfy them. On the back end of these blessings, we see verse 27. Then, then you shall know that God is in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. The day of the locusts points to the day of the Lord. And in light of the day of the Lord, there is a call for repentance from the heart. And on the other side of heart, repentance is blessing from the Lord. And Joel recounts the blessings of the Lord upon his people as they turn to him with all their heart. The land is renewed. The crops flourish. The animals are well fed. The grain, the oil, the wheat, they're in abundance. And where once there was lack, now having turned their hearts toward the Lord, there is plenty. They are satisfied. But I found it interesting in the text as I was studying the text that Joel doesn't stop with the blessings right here. In fact, this was a blessing in and of itself to recognize this from the text. Much of what Joel has shared from verses 19 through 27 in chapter 2 is deemed a physical blessing, material in nature. In verses 28 through 32, Joel unveils spiritual blessings blessings upon God's people as well. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall, dream, shall see visions. And also on my maidservants and on my, uh, my manservants and, and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You know, having just come out of the book of Acts, this is especially meaningful. You might recall that Peter in Acts chapter 2 stands up among the people refuting the claim that some of these men seem to be drunk. Beginning in Acts 2.15, Peter says, These men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter points backward to Joel's prophecy to explain the Holy Spirit outpouring in Acts 2. Joel, listen, Joel is writing to further explain the blessings of the Lord upon his people in the days to come. As they repent and turn to the Lord with all their heart. Joel is emphasizing a day not simply filled with physical blessing and satisfaction, but a day of spiritual filling when the Holy Spirit is abundantly poured out on God's people. Young and old, men and women, status doesn't matter. Men, men servant, maid servant. The spiritual blessing would serve as the seal of promise to those who believed in Jesus. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit would be the guarantee of our inheritance to come till the redemption of the purchased possession, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. So Joel prophesies about the very thing that Jesus promised in the Gospels. He calls his followers, remember Jesus calls his followers to wait for the promise to tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high. And Joel, hundreds of years prior to Christ, speaking those words, he prophesies that the Holy Spirit will be abundantly given to all flesh, to those who believe on Jesus. Thanks be to God, who provides physical blessings in large supply. But thanks be to God for pouring out the spiritual blessing of the Holy Spirit. Amen? What Joel speaks of here is essential to looking ahead to the day of the Lord. The day of the locust points toward the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is an urgent reminder of our need for heart repentance. To have ourselves right with the Lord. On the other side of heart repentance we see in the text... This multifaceted blessing from the Lord, physical blessing, spiritual blessings that come with having the Holy Spirit poured out. Joel then concludes his word from the Lord by pointing back to this pending day of the Lord. So we have the day of the locusts, we have the day of the Lord, we have then the day of repentance. And I'd like to come back now to the day of the Lord. That's where Joel ends things here in the third chapter. If the Holy Spirit serves as our guarantee of the inheritance to come, our seal of promise, what a joy, what a comfort and encouragement it should bring to your soul knowing that the coming day of the Lord, however terrible and dark and gloomy it may seem, if you are a child of God sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are kept safe, you are His, you are secure. But is there not an accounting of all men yet to come? Will not all men stand before the judge of the earth? God is going to judge, according to what we read here in Joel chapter 3, he's going to judge all the nations, all the nations, even this nation that we live in. We don't get a free pass because we live in the United States of America.
Those who have walked apart from God will be the recipients of God's wrathful judgment. His just judgment. The call in in chapter 3, verse 9 and forward is for the nations to gather. Verse 12, come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Literally, that is the valley of Yahweh judges. Or as we see in the text, the valley of decision. Now notice that the valley of decision is not the place... It's not the place where you are going to be queried with the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, in the days of old, it was not uncommon to have a circuit preacher, and he would go town to town, and maybe a tent revival kind of thing, and he would go in and he would preach, maybe a whole, whole week, Monday through Friday. He would preach, and every night, there'd be a call. There'd be an invitation to come forward. To receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Will you repent of your sins? Will you turn in faith to follow Jesus Christ tonight? That kind of idea is not what Joel is speaking of here in 3.14. When he says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The one who is making all decisions at this point is the Lord. The Lord is. The Lord, in fact, verse 12 says, he says, in this valley of decision, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. God, the righteous judge, has entrusted his son with authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. John chapter 5, 26 and 27 tells us that. God has granted his son the authority to judge. Paul, you might recall in Acts 17, verse 31, while he's in Athens, he says these words. He says, now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness... By whom? By the man. Who's that man? Jesus. By the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So as Joel speaks of this day of the Lord, he envisions the nations before the Lord in this valley of decision. The harvest at this particular point is ripe. Verse 13 says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the wine press is full, the vats overflow. You know, it's sort of an ironic statement. Here's why. Because you know the harvest time for these people, the people of God, the harvest time was a very exciting time. It was a very joy-filled time. This is what we're reading is not something that's filled with joy at all. This is very sober. It's very alarming. In fact, you see some of this same imagery if you turn to the last book of the scripture in Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 14. The text says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand, what's he got in his hand? A sharp sickle. Just listen to the description for just a moment. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The day of wrath is to come. Listen, Paul asks a a pertinent question in Romans chapter 2. He says, do you despise the riches of his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are, listen to this, he says, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath, In the day of wrath, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. That day of wrath is also characterized throughout different parts here of Joel. Chapter 2, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In fact, if you take that phrase and you just turn to the book of Zephaniah. In the book of Zephaniah, the first chapter of Zephaniah, we see that there's this description of the day of the Lord. And he talks about in verse 14, he says, the great day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah chapter one, verse 14. It's near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and devastation, a day of devastation and desolation. And here are the same words, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. In fact, part of what he shares on the back end of the Holy Spirit coming, we see in verse 30, chapter 2, I'll show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus talks about the sun and the moon and what's going on. All these things are going to happen before the Son of Man appears. It's the day of the Lord. Amos chapter 1 verse 2 has the similar imagery of what we see in in Joel 3 16 about the Lord roaring from Zion. It says in Amos 1 verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Joel is not the only one speaking of these things. In the midst of all the description of this day of wrath, Joel is quick to provide comfort for those whose heart belong to. To the Lord. He says there in verse 16, 
that not only will the Lord roar from Zion and utter his voice, the heavens and earth will shake, but listen, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. That's good news. The Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. The Lord, through Joel, says, so you shall know, in verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Oh, Joel now seems to be speaking of this day of peace, this place of holiness. Why? For the Lord himself will dwell there. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17 says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one. He'll save. He will rejoice. Listen to these words. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zechariah 8, verse 3 Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Joel concludes his word of the Lord, painting the picture of God's blessings upon his people. They will be at peace and find rest on his holy mountain. As you await this day of the Lord. Are you going to be found at peace with God or treasuring up wrath on this day of wrath? One writer was talking about and describing this day of wrath. And he says that the full wrath of God is revealed at two points in history. At the final judgment, Described by Joel and other writers, and at the cross of Christ, where it has already been poured out for those who trust Jesus. If you wait until the final day of judgment, he writes, you will face it alone and be condemned by Jesus. If you take refuge in Christ, he has faced your judgment for you. The Bible says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day of the locusts was no doubt devastating to the people of Judah. Crops were destroyed, resources vanished in the day when the locusts arrived. But there's coming a day of the Lord that has far greater impact than an invasion of locusts. The call is to blow the trumpet in Zion, to get ready the day of the Lord. And how does one approach and prepare himself for this day? Return to the Lord with a heart of repentance, says Joel. Turn from your sin and in faith turn to the Lord. The Lord takes pity on his land and uh, people. He takes pity on the land in verse 18. But he also takes pity upon his people who have a broken and contrite heart. To use the words of David in Psalm 51. He will not despise that kind of a heart. He pours out his physical and spiritual blessings, the greatest of these being the Holy Spirit 
and with the Holy Spirit as your seal and guarantee of your inheritance to come. The day of the Lord, while it will be filled with the wrath of the Almighty toward those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. Romans 2, 8 and 9. The Lord is going to judge in that day. The judgment of the Lord was a driving motivator we see for the Apostle Paul. It was what led him to do what he he did. In fact, we see this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, knowing therefore the judgment or the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For Paul, this was a reality. The judgment of God was a reality. His witnessing, his talking to people, his opening his mouth to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ was real. Church, do you think much of the Lord's judgment to come? Joel's word of the Lord is a word of judgment, a word of God's wrath yet to come, a word about man's sin and what's needed for man to prepare himself for that great and terrible day which no man can endure on his own. Praise the Lord, he doesn't leave us to our own doing to try and figure that out. He has given to us instruction. He's given to us his word to be able to know how to prepare ourselves for this coming day of the Lord. As frightening as God's full wrath is to consider, if you place your trust on Christ, the one upon whom God exhausted his wrath in your stead and mine, If you believe on him and his finished work at the cross, having now been justified by his blood, Romans 5, 9 says, we shall be saved from wrath through him, through Christ. We're saved from wrath through Christ. That's the only way we're saved. It's through Christ. Thanks be to God that he is our refuge and shelter in the day of wrath. Amen? Thanks be to God that he is our strength and our stronghold to deliver us out of darkness. Thanks be to God for his goodness that calls us to repentance. Thanks be to God that he is a restorer of those years eaten by the locusts. You know, many of you, I would imagine, have not gone through a locust plague. But perhaps many of you can think back on some years Some years that you wish you perhaps could do over, have a do-over. Well, we can't go back and do them over. But I hope and pray that the scripture is an encouragement to you this morning. That this God that we serve is a restorer of those years. That's the God we serve, church. Thanks be to God for the gift of his Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and prepare us for this coming day of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his righteousness. The days may be dark, may be fraught with dangers and snares, but Joel's word to us is a word of hope, knowing that the Lord is on the throne. Remember, Yahweh is God. He's in control. And since this is the God we serve, let us not only remind our children about the day of the locusts, but let's be diligent to speak to them of our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell your children about this God of the scriptures. Let your children tell their children about this great and mighty God 
and pray their children will proclaim the news to yet another generation. I leave you with the Lord's testimony himself through the prophet Joel. Chapter 2, verse 27. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for who you are. That you are a God who judges righteously. That you are a God who restores. Reminded of, of Job and how you restored his life. Just as an example, Lord, you, you are a restorer of life. God, you are a gracious and merciful God. Praise you that you're slow to anger. Praise you for your everlasting love, your great kindness. Praise you, Lord, that you relent from doing harm and evil. Thank you, Lord, that you have your purposes, your interests in mind, Lord, as you deal with your children. May we trust in you. May we hold fast to you. And Father, whatever may be going on, it may seem like where we're at right now, this seems like a bunch of locusts have invaded our, our home. It seems like all stuff around us is just fading away. Keep some, things keep breaking. Things are, are always needing to get fixed and taken care of, and nothing seems to be working right. And, oh, Lord, I pray we can have that kind of mindset and spirit. But, Lord, I pray as we look to something greater yet to come in this day of the Lord, I pray, Lord, that we be reminded of the importance and, and the, the urgency to have our heart right with you. For, Lord, there is a day coming, a day when you are going to judge the world in righteousness by this man that you have appointed, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your goodness, which leads us to repentance. Lord, everything about this that we're talking about this morning is it comes from you. It all comes from you. So, Father, we thank you. Pray that we would walk in these days ahead reminded of, of eternity, reminded of our heavenly citizenship, reminded that your son Jesus is once again coming this time to judge. Oh, Father, I pray that we all would be ready and we would live our days in light of his return. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.